Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Josh and Rebecca Tickell. And many listeners have watched, no doubt, some of their movies, as had I, before meeting past guest Bill Benenson and his wife, Lori Benenson. And they have long uh, bios that we're, I, I believe we'll get to. But I want to start off with a, a quick one sentence. Rebecca Harrell Tickell, I probably just said your name wrong, and Josh Tickell have one I of the most enduring... I my name, yes. Oh, good. <laughs> They have one of the most enduring boutique environmental film studios in the country, making movies with a commitment to heal themselves and the planet. Now, I also just took out some of the names of people who have been in your movies because people are going to recognize names like David Arquette, Marielle Hemingway, Woody Harrelson, Jason Bateman, Leonardo DiCaprio. And you've been listed for Academy Awards, uh, a nomination, or I, I, what does it mean? Like, you've been listed for Academy Awards. You've won things at Cannes, Sundance, and also... This is rare. You've been poisoned in your movies and at your home with things like Corexit, Abimectin. Josh, if I if I get this right, you were born in an area that's now called Cancer Alley. Correct. Yes. And longtime listeners and readers of my blog know that I refer to Cancer Alley a lot because it says something deep about our nation that we have such a thing. And you have and. Well, let's start talking. We should talk about some of your background, but also your movie On Sacred Ground about the Dakota Pipeline is coming out in a few days as we record this. And hopefully like today as this comes out or just about now. Should we start about your backgrounds or On Sacred Ground? I think we dive into the movie with uh, one minor caveat, and that is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio has not been in any of our films, although yet. <laughs> Although uh, we definitely like him a lot, and he's yes. a great guy, and he's been very helpful. Yeah, in the past he's a ways. he's a phenomenal yeah. phenomenal environmentalist. So, yes, yeah. And our film school was shortlisted for an Academy Award back in two thousand and eight. So that means that we were on the shortlist. We didn't quite make it to the nomination phase, but for us, and it being our first movie, it was a really big deal. I just heard Academy Award somewhere or other, so it sounds like Academy Award to me. And DiCaprio, yeah, he, his foundation tweeted me a couple of times, so that was kind of cool at my end. But we haven't met yet in yeah. person. His former foundation director wrote the foreword to the Kiss the Ground book. So there's there's a lot of love there, a lot, a lot of good connections. Yeah. Just didn't want to. And that's something that one of the big things that I work on is, and something that I think is missing in leadership in this in the area of sustainability is, Bringing community and especially leaders, people that people look up to. And I think it's easy to dismiss actors and Hollywood people as not really um, – they're not scientists, they're not politicians, but they're extraordinarily influential. And you guys are tapping into that. Yes, that's exactly right. I think we realized early on that film has an incredible power to reach a massive amount of people and can be used as a tool to create a tipping point to create structural change, to change, you know, the type of things that aren't working in the world and to use film as a medium to affect that change. Um, and incredibly, you know, yes, they're not actors, aren't scientists and they're not politicians usually. Um, but there's deep caring here, you know, in SoCal where we are right now, um, for the environment. I think, you know, just like everyone is deeply concerned and, really wants to take action to change the the way that things are going right now. I think that Hollywood celebrities see these films as a real opportunity to take that reach and to take their voice and to use it to do something meaningful in the world. And, to, and to, for their kids, they their people are worried just like us, you know, and they know that we have we can change things if we're willing to. And that's that's part of why we have such an incredible cast on this new film called On Sacred Ground is coming out right now in theaters and also Apple TV, iTunes, Amazon. Uh, it really was a great outpouring of people, as you mentioned, from David Arquette to Mariel Hemingway, Francis Fisher, and and a lot of indigenous actors whose names may not be as familiar to people. Like Irene Bedard. And Carrie Knupe and David Midthunder. Mm -hmm. uh, these, this was an incredible collaboration between... Um, Actors of European descent and actors of uh, Native American indigenous descent. So that that is a, a way that the voice of that particular film and all of our films has been amplified is through those incredibly talented people that devote their time and energy to be on screen. And, 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 and Rebecca's in the film too, briefly. <laughs> 
And these celebrities didn't just like show up on set and say their lines, you know, on sacred ground, really. Um, we, it was a, we had a small budget, but we had these big stars come and really put so much into it, including like last minute sort of, you know, we did a lot of improvising on the set. We did, it was sort of, um, a news, news was happening as we were making the film. So we would be like on the set incorporating what was happening into what we were doing, um, you know, and also there was a lot of learning that happened because, you know, much like at Standing Rock, which the film is the first narrative film to address, the people on the set all came from a very diverse background. And we saw people coming together for the first time from very different walks of life and having a sacred experience together that, you know, the film making process of on sacred ground very much reflected what the subject of the film is about. Given your backgrounds on the number of films that you've done in this area, you have the choice of, sadly, many different areas that you could focus on. And how did you, and, and focusing on one thing means you're not focusing on others. I can see why you would work on uh, the BP spill, given where you grew up. Uh, how, what about this one? I mean, what's the story of you guys focusing on this one and putting what you, what you have into it? One of the big takeaways from On Sacred Ground, and, and we'll start with what we learned and then we'll go back to why we did it. Um, one of the big takeaways is there really is no environmental justice issue that is not also an indigenous rights justice issue. And that's sort of where we came, sort of coming full circle. That's, that's what we learned in making that film. Why we made the film is Rebecca, when Standing Rock happened, when the protests erupted, she wanted to go out there and be on the front lines, but she was, you know, eight and a half, nine months pregnant. So I was the one that ended up going with a camera and ended up donating all that footage and having hard drives that we took out to help other filmmakers save their footage. All of that got donated back to the indigenous community. Uh, but the learning experience for us collectively as a team, as a filmmaking couple, producing and directing partners, writing partners, you know, our entire community went out. Everyone went or was involved and came back um, and was part of that experience, everyone that we knew. So it was a collective, it was a collective physical experience, but it was a collective emotional experience. And I, I argue it was a collective spiritual experience too. It was the first time that all of the registered tribal nations in the United States came together with many of the non-federally recognized tribal nations and every major other indigenous culture on the planet was represented there. And we, as people of European descent, um, were granted permission to be part of that. And that was a huge honor. So what really transpired, aside from a conflict around a pipeline, was a unity of powerful spiritual leaders and people who were experiencing the same thing in different parts of the country, different parts of the world. And they, one after another, were experiencing issues of transgression of their rights and transgression of environmental justice. Same, same types of situations, whether it was an oil pipeline or refinery, mining, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and I should add that, you know, it, we always think of this as a fossil fuel issue. But when you really dive deep into this, this is an extraction issue. You know, people who uh, we are we are now a a holier than thou green culture. We can drive our Teslas and have our solar panels and, you know, and now we're absolved of any any environmental guilt. But yet the lithium, the cobalt and the, uh, all of the rare earth metals that go into those batteries, most of that stuff is being mined on some indigenous or sovereign treaty land somewhere. So there's really, as an extractive culture that is at this stage, very blinded by our need to just continue to extract and make and throw away and never think about, hey, can we take all of that lithium in that laptop that I just found out was obsolete because Mac decided to make it obsolete? Can I take that lithium and, and reuse it rather than remining it? Um, can I take a lesser approach to how much energy my life takes? Can I take a lesser approach to my carbon footprint? 
can I participate individually? Can we participate globally? Rather than taking that approach, we as a culture are extremely committed to digging stuff up and making big messes to make more stuff, whether it's a, you know, environmentally conscious Tesla or a nice solar panel that, you know, maybe that's, maybe that absolves us of green guilt uh, or fossil guilt. The reality is an on sacred ground dances in this, that we have a culture that is justifiably needing these things. We need oil. We need natural gas. We need lithium. But yet we forget that before we created all these new solutions to new problems, and it's a self-perpetuating cycle, like, oh, we've made a mess with fossil fuels. Let's get batteries. Oh, we made a mess with batteries. Let's get the... It's this continually putting Band-Aids on things. Before we did all that, as people of European descent, there were folks living here, and they had a pretty incredible understanding of the ecosystem. They managed the ecosystem. It wasn't just like they were, you know, cave people. They actually interacted with large parts of the ecosystem, rebuilt pieces of the ecosystem after fires. They engineered how water would flow. They engineered where animals would roam. It was a very, very deep understanding of ecology. And there were spiritual principles through which all of that occurred. Yes, they were not perfect people. Yes, they had wars and things like this. But the coming together of these two cultures, this this European-based culture of extract, conquer, define, reshape, you know, throw away, um, destroy, and this more indigenous culture of work in harmony with, learn to adapt our needs to the needs of nature. These two cultures hadn't really come together in a way um, in modern modern times until uh, Standing Rock. And that that's a once in a lifetime, if not once in a century type of moment, um, which is why when we interacted with that, we went, oh my gosh, you couldn't write this. You couldn't write all these tribes coming together around an oil pipeline protest and war vets you know, thousands of U.S. war vets coming together with them all around indigenous rights issues, but which are also environmental issues, which are all it's just the layering of pieces of that story is so rich. We told one tiny little sliver of it. And hopefully there's a thousand more stories that get told about it because it's it's an historical moment that needs to be front and center in our history books needs to be front and center in education and schools, in political conversations, and in all conversations about the environment. I'm so happy that there are all these new environmental companies making all this money off of these kind of green concepts. But it's often not from a place of, hey, how do we re-engineer this whole system? It's like, hey, how do we sell some more product? That's okay. That's, you know, that's a step in the right direction is selling green product. But like, I think what Standing Rock said is like, stop, pause, rethink, connect, meditate, realize that we may have to go much deeper than what we've done so far as an environmental movement, if we're really going to address these really big issues. Many different things to cover here. You talked about there's the emotion of the experience which and and the exchange of cultures there's the difference between what we're trying to do and what what many people are, uh, believe that they're doing and an effect that I call stepping on the gas thinking it's the brake wanting congratulations you say it's nice that they're doing these things many of the things are are counterproductive uh carbon offsets increase extraction and replacing extraction with a tree Extraction of something that was down there for 10 million years with a tree that will live about 100 years does not offset it. And if it promotes more extraction, you know, it's just one many of many examples. If we focus on climate and forget about to the exclusion of um, extinctions, aquifer depletion, deforestation, our culture is what's going on. And 
we are being i think there's a lot of people who would who would criticize past cultures as being imperialist and colonialist what are we doing if not that i think any of these would be deeply rich to follow up on uh the emotional experience of getting together of making the film mm. the disconnect between what we're trying to do and 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 what people feel like they're doing and what's actually happening and the and the third thing would be actually being effective changing culture and to me if an indigenous people who own who i don't know if it's, who are on the land stops a pipeline i'm happy for that but is that that's the last we got that's all we got yeah. there it should be it's we should have stopped that on so many other ways yeah any place you want to go in, in particular? You know, as I'm hearing us talk about this, I'm reminded of there was it was beyond a protest for people there. You know, even though I didn't get to go, I very much lived it in many ways. And um, I think, you know, you saw different groups come together, including like all you know, so many different tribes in North America and from around the world and veterans. But you also saw. Um, like a large, this is kind of a strange thing to bring up, but like the Burning Man community showed up at Standing Rock. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because one of the things that was being experimented with within the Standing Rock um, protest was trying, in spite of huge obstacles like violence against them from the U.S. government and uh, the cold weather, just to name a couple, um, was they tried to reinvent what the world could look like living in community. So there was like some, some experimenting happening with like giving up money with like, you know, um, like consent of having your picture taken or like, you know, just a lot of, you know, people showed up there expecting one thing. And I think that people learned a lot of lessons that weren't expected. And, um, and some of that starts to show up in the film on sacred ground. You, you get a sense of that. But I think that they weren't just saying no to a pipeline. They were saying, let's create a new world. You know, and, and also this comes from, you know, part of we were speaking with indigenous leaders back in 2013 about we had been told the prophecy of the black snake. It's a Lakota prophecy that says that when the black snake crosses the land, a time of great chaos will begin. And then when the Dakota Access Pipeline started being built, we got word from these same people. We think this is the Black Snake. So, you know, you're dealing not just with people gathered to stop an oil pipeline or people, you know, burners out there to like, you know, reinvent society or with veterans who are trying to like heal their past and make things right. Um, You know, it was just it was a it was a, a magical event that transcended, I think, what any protest that has ever happened before had achieved. And I think that's why so many eyeballs were on it. And for so many people there it was a transcendent experience. And that is what our main character, Dan, goes through on his journey there, because he you know, we, we tried to take a very respectful and reverent approach to the storytelling of, you know, this issue that affects so many indigenous people. Um, and as non-Indigenous filmmakers, telling it through the lens of this war veteran who has a conservative view, who suffers from PTSD, somebody that so many people can relate to that's maybe not our, you know, our the, the choir that we preach to often. You know, these are people like my dad, people, in, you know, like the veterans themselves who showed up who were very conservative. So that was our way in. And Dan goes on this journey that's this transformative journey that we wrote really to do our best at reflecting what the real stories were of people who went. And, you know, our hope is that we can take a little bit of that transcendence and bring that out to, to the world, to people beyond who, you know, weren't at Standing Rock. Um, because I, I think that there was something powerful there, even though they didn't stop the pipeline and the oil continues to flow at double the rate, a million barrels of oil per day currently um it was still it, it still achieved something remarkable and i think that it, the ripple effect from that will continue and and make change 
Can you share a story of your of a one-on-one or an interaction that you had that you didn't expect with people there of any of the communities that you mentioned? One of the scenes, all of the scenes in On Sacred Ground are based on things that happened at Standing Rock. And uh, we've had, you know, we've had people of European descent who were water protectors watch it. We've had Lakota people who were leaders in the movement who were there from start to finish watch it. And everyone says this is an incredible, you know, as accurate as you could possibly be in some respects with the depiction of events. And part of the reason was so many of the events, we were able to study the event after it happened through the footage we had. And we were able to watch that footage over and over and over again and say, okay, if you were going to rebuild this in a narrative film, how would you rebuild it? So it's both, uh, it both honors what happened and it's exciting to watch. Um, one of the scenes that occurs is um, an intimate conversation that's happening in a truck at night as they're traveling toward the pipeline. And it's high tension, high stakes, it's snowing, and and they're traveling out. And the, the conversation between a, a young indigenous woman, a leader, and Dan, our main character, played by William May Pother. And Dan is a war vet. He's a journalist. He's got PTSD. He's He's dealing with some stuff. Um, and he's slowly sort of being let into this world of the Lakota people and the the tragedy of what's happened and the, the conflict that they're dealing with. And the conversation is is him and the young woman named Mika, who's played by Carrie Knupe. Mm-hmm. And they are they're kind of deciding how much to trust each other. And they're revealing things, and mostly it's Mika revealing what's happened to her tribe and what's happened to her. She reveals she's a mom. She left her children six months ago to come here to do this. She reveals specific abuses that have happened with the police and interaction where she was put into a dog kennel and a number was written on her arm. And this conversation becomes more and more shocking as Dan, you know, is listening in this very enclosed, intimate space. It's a space that's so hard to imagine occurred, but that conversation is taken word for word from the camera audio that I had in the truck with a young woman who reveals the same story. And it's a story that would have never occurred under other circumstances because it's very intimate and it's very, it's jarring. It's, it's, it's disturbing, uh, but it's a hundred percent true from start to finish. And that scene, you know, when I watch that scene today, it's it still just grabs me by the gut, and uh, it because I lived it, and 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 when I, I I we've been in enough theaters now in the in the festival circuit to see audiences live that moment too, and it's I mean you can hear a pin drop in the in the theater. It's it's such a powerful powerful moment because the audiences is having to grapple with the fact that, my God, this is all based on true stuff. You know, they don't know it's word for word true, um, but they're dealing with these issues just as Dan dealt with them. With all that happening, how did you decide to go scripted instead of documentary? I mean, you have experiences in both. And how did you know, uh, for the craft of it, I'm guessing that the the actress playing it is uh, not a Hollywood star. She is a Hollywood star, and she's and also indigenous. She's from Pine Ridge, and um, she's Lakota. And she's Lakota, mm-hmm. and she for her it was v- deeply personal. It was, you know, a lot came up for people on set who, you know, for them it was not a small choice to choose to be in the film to participate in it. Um, it I, I just jump in real quick. I think Rebecca's got something probably pretty powerful to say about this, but one of the things that we realized about Standing Rock is when you look at the documentary footage, a lot of it is uh, of indigenous people and, and rightfully so we wanted to separate out this particular film and, and be honest, this is from a white perspective. We're non-indigenous filmmakers. Um, we didn't want to. We didn't want to overuse footage that we'd shot or that we'd seen other people shot of of 
Native and Indigenous people. So we wanted to find a way to tell the story without without doing something that we thought wasn't our role to do, which is we didn't want to tell the Indigenous story. We wanted to tell the story of a fish out of water, of somebody who comes into this and have them learn, have them transform, have them go through the process of observing, of watching, of being shocked by it, of being, uh, you know, loved by it. Um, and, and that wasn't something we could have ever done in the documentary format. The only way to do it, because so many things happened that never got filmed. There were so many important moments. Um, the only way to do it and to do it with integrity, we felt, was from a scripted standpoint. Yeah, and we from day one, we took our first concept and then the script when we had it and we had we ran it by elders, we ran it by leaders, by water protectors. It was important to us that, you know, we go about this in a way that that honored the story and the people involved. And it's been a it's been a learning journey for us from from day one. And part of that was from interacting with our indigenous crew and cast who taught us so much on set. And, um, and now just to, in the Q and A's with them and to see, you know, different people like Che Jim and Marshall Dancing Elk and David Midthunder and Carrie Noopy, all using the film now as a tool to reach people around these issues that are so important for them. That is so deeply satisfying, but really we wanted to take this message that the purpose was to take this message and to have it reach the mainstream. Yeah. Meet people where they are. And to meet, meet and, and the mainstream, at. you know, this was a conversation that we felt we could bring into, it's like you, you come in, it's a nice segue, you know, it's a nice introduction perhaps for somebody who wasn't as familiar with this issue or who hasn't lived these experiences and maybe has a totally different worldview and we've found that people can watch this who come from a very different, you know, political view or, you know, whatever, just with different ideas. And they can watch the film and all can come together watching the film and reach a similar conclusion, which is what our goal was, was to, you know, cross that bridge and have it be a powerful tool to reach new people. Reach new people, meet them where they are mm -hmm. and give them what feeling? Is it the feeling of... Uh, there's this protest happening or the bigger picture of we need to, to change ourselves. I mean, when, when you're talking about the non-Indigenous mm -hmm. perspective and virtually all of it, I I think of the company with the pipeline is not buying its own product. We are buying – when someone buys a plane ticket – whenever I bring this up, people say they feel guilty. Don't bring it up. But we're paying for it. We're buying airplane tickets. We're buying the SUVs. We're uh, we're funding it, and it seems to me that that's the cause. It's I mean, there might be sheriffs and people laying down the pipe locally, but they're being paid out of the profits that are coming from America buying the oil. Yeah, they're just yeah, they're on the payroll of sort of the bigger enterprise. I think the film doesn't say don't use oil. And the film doesn't say pipelines are bad. And the film doesn't say, look at your carbon footprint or any of that stuff. It's not a preachy film. It's a film about what happened. Um, and you ask, what's the feeling? The, the film asks big questions and deep questions. And it doesn't necessarily answer all those questions. Dan is from a conservative state. He is a U.S. veteran who has been wounded terribly uh, in battle, and he's going into this experience blind. He has no idea what this culture is, what this world is that he's being slowly led into. Uh, and that's Dan is, you know, he's a meta character. He's a representation of us European people that are very unaware of the place that we live in and the people that we live amongst, and. The feeling ultimately is one of reverence. It's one of respect. It's one of having been touched by something very deep and very sacred that is not of our culture. Um, and, and it's one of kind of awe of realizing, wow, this is a really big thing. It's a really big topic. This is a big spiritual 
cultural coming together conversation. And ultimately, there is a huge opportunity for healing here. Huge for healing the past, the present, for setting the, setting the precedence for healing the future. Uh, and we've fumbled the ball thus far as a culture. And I, and I don't mean that to create guilt or bad feelings. It's just, we have, we've kind of messed it up in terms of being, re, you know, people who, who have reverence and respect for those who were here before and who are still here today. Um, and Dan has to grapple with all that. And the audience does too. It's a, it's a probing, intense, beautiful story. And if you don't have transformation and your heart is not open by watching this film, you might have to check your phone. You but really might have to check your pulse. Baby, there's, look, I think this is a film about healing trauma. Yeah. That's the feeling. You know, the feeling is one, what is it? Every person has to reach a certain breaking point to be willing to say, I will do what it takes to heal this. And maybe not everybody suffers from PTSD, but there is a kind of collective PTSD that we can all tap into. Mm. And this film deals with taking this, the steps to begin to heal that trauma. Mm. And, you know, we're, and we're looking at some deep trauma here, starting with, you know, hundreds of years of trauma against our indigenous people. And we're a part of that, you know, and this film, it does not create Dan like he's like the savior of all of the issues. In fact, it's a film that has him suddenly becoming awake around his role in this bigger picture and the cost of all of us playing that role. And then his internal process to begin his healing journey. And that's for everyone. You know, that's hopefully something that this can inspire in everyone because when we begin to take those steps to heal and we begin to talk about that trauma, that's when the magic and the healing can truly begin. I also feel like a big part of the healing is to stop taking the land. <laughs> I mean, the, <laughs> what, what brought me to the Benenson's first was their movie about the Hadza. I don't yeah. know if you've watched it. Maybe you were part of it. I'm not sure. Powerful. And what, the more that I live sustainably, everyone's like, oh, you're so extreme. And I think of myself as traditional. I mean, no one had... No one burned fossil fuels before a couple of centuries ago. No one had a refrigerator more than about a century ago. No one was connected to the electric grid more than about 100 years ago. And as much as I felt this way too, it's very tempting to say, oh, if we don't keep progress, I'll let people define progress for themselves. But I think everyone knows what I mean. Then, oh, it's, we're, the infrastructure will crumble and the hospitals will close and mothers are going to die in childbirth and 30 is going to be old age again. And if I get a cut, I'll get gangrene because I don't have any antibiotics. And I look it all up and vaccines, antibiotics, anesthetic, anesthesia, democracy, sports, culture, all these things came well before pollution did. And I think of, you're saying reinvent culture, but I think of restoring a lost, what, what, you know, the stuff that when, when they ask you, what do you want your gravestone to say? And it's never like, oh, I was more efficient. You know, it's spending time with your community and, and spending time with your kids and dancing and singing. And that's what's available to us. And I feel like, to me, that's the okay. <laughs> you guys are killing me that I I haven't seen the movie yet. I've only seen the trailer, and I'm like now I feel like I like I have to see it now. But oh, I gotta you wait. gotta go I'm watch sorry. it. Oh, good. Well, I hope yeah. we're, we're killing everyone who's watching this too, and that <laughs> everybody runs out and look, watches it's a, it. It's a power. It's an unusual film. We we <laughs> you know we spent six years making this thing, and and it's it's a lot of the time that we made it, it wasn't working. You know, things didn't work on set. Things didn't work. You know, when we saw the footage, it was a lot that didn't work. But the film got made, I think, because it is, there's a spirit in this film, you know, and it wanted to be said and it wanted to be made and it called us to make it and to participate in making it. I shouldn't say we made it. We were part of making it. But when people see the film, they have a powerful sense of transformation. I mean, people are, they're blown away on a deep, deep level that whether you you believe in God or you're an atheist, where, wherever you are in that spectrum, you know, I think it's hard to to say it's not a spiritual journey to watch this film. It really is. Mm. It's, it's powerful. And if we're going to heal, you know, our interaction with the environment, we have to heal our spirits. We have to heal our hearts. We're very disconnected. 
from the planet, you know, the, the ecosystems, the trees, the animals, the plants, you know, we, uh, we just, we're a funny, funny species. We, <laughs> we need the planet. We need the soil. We need the air. We need the water. But as a species, we seem to try and be working on getting as far away from those things as we possibly can. You know, heaven forbid there be a bug in our presence or that we, you know, have to deal with a real animal, um, you know, that we have to touch it or, or heaven forbid we have to kill it to eat it. It's just we're very, very, very disconnected from the ecosystem of which we're an intrinsic part, you know. I talk about that a lot. I, I, I suggest that listeners look around because I bet most of you, there's not a plant or anything living besides yourself within view. And I often, I wonder, I think that before something like probably living memory, you couldn't, every, probably every human being was a short walk away from solitude among the trees or walking on the beach, no bulldozers or honking in the background. And it's with someone who's born or has lived without that around, I think doesn't know what they're missing. Yeah. And I think what they're, I think that the effect, whether we recognize it or not, is going to be anxiety and disconnect, uh, isolation. Apathy. Totally. Apathy, Apathy, anxiety, depression, isolation, inflammation, paralysis. All of the, yeah. All of these things are symptoms of the disease of disconnection from nature. As well as each other. When I, now, I'm, I'm very curious to hear what it was like. It doesn't sound like you were deeply embedded with the Lakota or the people there, but it sounds like you've had some more than I have. And I'm, what was your experience? And, and I think if you, you, you guys put yourselves out there on, in your movies. And, and given that, I imagine you must have really um, not held back here personally i mean there's there's i'm i'm hearing already your devotion to the craft and the art of creating a, a work of art uh, the movie there's also you interacting directly in a you're talking about the guy going in there that's representing you i would guess there did you have I mean, this personal transformation it happened to you i am i right that it happened to you during after Maybe even before. I'm not sure. What was it like personally? It's, you know, I think for certainly speaking for ourselves, but I think this is somewhat of a universal experience. Those who were involved in Standing Rock, it was a vortex that was unavoidable. It was so such a powerful magnetism. And, you know, I was, I didn't want to go to Standing Rock. <laughs> I didn't want to get shot with rubber bullets and grenades and freeze and, you know, not have food and not have warm beverages. You know, I didn't want to do any of that no stuff. place to sleep. Yeah. I really, you know. I thought he was dead, actually, yeah. for part of the time. I mean, there. you know. I called the jail to try to find him. I, mean, I didn't well, hear thought who was dead? Josh, there's a line in the movie where Dan goes to Standing Rock and he finally calls his wife and she'd been trying to get a hold of him. She's pregnant. And uh, she answers the phone and he finally calls and she goes, oh, you're alive. Because that's what I said to Josh. I mean, the, the truth is, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to be out without cell phone coverage. Cell phone coverage is very bad. <laughs> it's very hard to call people from there. You just have no signal, you know. And when you do call, you know, somebody like Rebecca doesn't always pick up her phone. It's and then she You gets, did not call. <laughs> she gets really upset when you finally get her, get her on the phone. Oh, man. I was, I to be was, fair, I she, was pissed. To be fair, she was very pregnant. And I hadn't and, heard from you. The last thing I had heard was that you're going out to the front lines and I didn't and hear from you for three days. It wasn't, anyway, I don't want to do it. We won't go, we won't go down that route. Touch us personally. The, the, the reality was I didn't want to go. And I think a lot of people felt that way. It's like, oh, do you want to go to a war zone? in the middle of America without good cell phone reception where there's no food. Oh, by the way, it's sub-zero and they're shooting people with water cannons, rubber bullets, and grenades. It's like, where do I sign up? <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> what could be better? You know, like, um, but it was for all sorts of various circumstances an inevitable future which I could not avoid and which I to which I was called very strongly. Uh, and which Rebecca would have been right out there on the front line, probably more, you know, more courageous than I was. 
Um, but yes, I was uh, given the incredible gift and opportunity to be with a group of mostly Lakota youth, young people, uh, activists, very, very, very powerful, uh, strong-willed, incredible young people, which I learned, you know, they actually started the movement. They were the impetus behind it. Uh, they let me into their camp, their hotel rooms, their world, their lives, um, and and allowed me to see and be with them in a way that uh, I, I am still very humbled by. Um, and yeah, it's it's one of those experiences that you never really get over because you're like, wait, there is a concurrent reality inside our country that is directly linked to our constitution, which, you know, all of our political leaders swear to uphold this important document that guides our country. And that document says that we will honor and respect the treaties that we've made. And the treaties say that most of North and South Dakota and large portions of the rest of the country are completely owned and controlled by these people. But yet we reneged on those treaties and we've, we've essentially transgressed our own agreements as a country. And and those people still exist, and their ways still exist, and their culture still exists. And to be brought into that and to see that from a state of not knowing, it is, it's a metaphysical, spiritual, biological awakening that is really, really a life-changing moment. And I hope that people can just have a little sense of that by watching the film, because it's big stuff. You know, it's real big big, big stuff for us as a culture. Not having spent time with any indigenous cultures beyond, I mean, on Thanksgiving, I was at a workshop or before Thanksgiving, I was at a workshop talking about the first Thanksgiving led by Native Americans here. That's like the extent of my, of this, although except that the direction that I'm moving keeps, I keep, I mean, I've had on the podcast, people have lived among the Hadza, the San in Southern Africa, the Kogi, uh, the Tumane, uh, the Matses in this is in, in uh, South America and Central America, and the more that I learn about them, the more I see a, a brighter future if we, with humility, learn from them. And I can see a future in which we live not polluting, in which we live sustainably. In many ways, adopting what we are sadly extinguishing. In between here and there is, I believe, what you're talking about, the experience that you had, because people tell me, Josh, I'm here. My mom's on the other coast. She's sick. I'm going to go. That means I'm going to buy a plane ticket. End of story. And we've, we live in a time, this seems totally unfair and not anyone's fault, but I grew up in a time when lots of things that, we, that were polluting were viewed as, as good. In the 1970s, when I was a kid, we didn't, no one could imagine you could fill the Pacific with plastic, for example. And times have changed. We have. And I can see a bright future and I can see the type of struggle that you're describing in between here and there. Most people don't want to go to get the rubber bullets or whatever, you know, not buy the SUV, even though, I don't know, the bigger car is safer in an accident. You know, some gener it falls on us, our generation, the people alive today grew up in one system, have to change to another system, don't really have to. There's no law compelling them to. It's very easy to say, I don't want to deal with that. Maybe next generation will solve this problem. Maybe, maybe some sort of, uh, maybe some scientists will come up with something. For generations, we've been saying maybe something will come up. And it's clear that it's not, it seems clear to me it's not happening. In fact, th those things tend to be accelerating them. What you have done or what you've described of going into this from the outside looks like horrible experience. I'm not sure if that's the right word to put the way to describe it. And yet deeply rewarding. You know, I think that what you're what you're tapping into, I remember we were on our way to the premiere for On Sacred Grounds and I was driving with Che Jim and Marshall Dan Singelk and Irene Bedard. And we were talking about, um, you know, they were asking me questions about my journey and, you know, the sort of the lessons that I've learned and what we all realized and agreed is that, you know, it's been uncomfortable. It's been uncomfortable. It's been outside of my comfort zone for sure. 
like I'm in new territory and that can be terrifying. You know, uncomfortable is maybe a, a safer word to use, you know, because each day there is a kind of battle within myself of saying, okay, I'm going to go outside of my comfort zone. I'm willing to be uncomfortable and learn this new thing or to be open to that my perspective may not be the full perspective and that it, that it can change. And, you know, that's part of this lesson, you know, is that is being willing to go there, like what you've done, you know, just the last nine months of being willing to, you know, turn off the power in your apartment to try and experiment with being off the grid. I mean, that is perhaps a perfect example of somebody who's willing to be uncomfortable, to try out something new and to learn something new. And I think that that's, it's healthy for us to say, you know what? Yes, this is uncomfortable, We're all, but we have to be willing to do it. And we're willing to do it because I know on the other side of this, there will be a huge reward. And I think, and yeah, the, the film shows Dan going on that very journey. And I feel like it's, it's, it's not just on the other side of it. It's in the doing is... I mean, what was it? Did you yeah. did you get sprayed in the cold with freezing water or rubber bullet? I mean, was it you? You faced struggles when you were there. I mean, you're sitting now on the couch in your home. Yeah, it was less comfortable than that. But the <sighs> it's not. It seemed like it would. And we're not just talking about like like creature comforts. We're also talking about like you know, willing to have a new conversation because, oh, I might not say it right. Or, oh, I might offend somebody because I'm learning something new. Like, you know, we, should we just do nothing? Is that, the, it's, should we just stay safe? Or are we willing to venture out of that safety into learning, you know, expanding our consciousness, which, you know, some, some people describe it as jumping through a ring of fire. That does not sound very comfortable to me, but it looks like all different shapes and forms. Like I've certainly, I've felt discomfort over these issues, even in the last few days from the comfort of my home, as I expand my awareness around these issues. I think, I think it's really good if we can acknowledge that and be willing to embrace it as, you know, okay, we're going to agree that this is going to be uncomfortable, but I'm willing to go there. Because it's going to be great, <laughs> even though it may not seem like it in the moment. Yeah, Josh looks like he's on the verge of saying something. Uh, yeah, I didn't end up getting hit by a rubber bullet. Um, <laughs> Thank God. I think everyone got wet and cold. Definitely, it was close to the bullets. Definitely close to the water cannons. Um, but it, I think, just the seeing of what people were willing to go through to take a stand and to seeing the, the flip side, the extent that the other part of the culture is willing to go through to maintain its grasp on resources. Those two things were expressions of two different cultures that are existing simultaneously that were obviously not aligned. Um, and, and to see it and to be there with it, it's, it's, um, one of those things that that physical expression is so violent and had such intense repercussions for people on both sides that it should, as a culture, give us a moment of saying, okay, whoa, whoa, like this is not, uh, you know, this is not there will be blood, you know, this is not the, the California rush to get oil and we're just going to hack people to pieces to get what we want. You know, this is not a a kind of brutal society that we've ascribed to be. And so it's a good moment to kind of take a step back and think about, okay, what are we willing to do to have the lifestyle we have? And as you said, there's no kind of meta drive to legislate this kind of radical you know, structural change, global systems change. But that doesn't mean that it won't come and it doesn't mean that it can't happen. And a lot of it has to do with radically rethinking things, to be radical rethinkers and to say, okay, well, um, great. So I produce a widget, a refrigerator, a laptop, a car. What would a company look like that produced a sustainable widget? You know, oh, we would guarantee that that widget would last for at least 10 years. And then we would guarantee that we would take it back and recycle it, 100% of it. And we would guarantee that no, you know, mining had to occur. You know, 
There are just layers. We've reached a point in our technological advancement where this is achievable. It's totally achievable, and it would actually create tremendous economic wealth and well-being around the world. But we haven't made the mental leap yet. And I think there have been shining um, leaders, brilliant people who have kind of laid the framework. Buckminster Fuller was one of them. Amory Lovins is a more recent one. These thinkers have said there is a way to do this. And in fact, it would take far less resources. It would be more efficient. GDP would increase. All of these measures that you use extractive wealth to measure economies of scale at would still work, but you would be measuring different things. And the per capita you know, availability of nutrition, energy, power, life, free time, in real terms, the per capita of these things would be better. So it, you know, there's a scene toward the end of the film where Dan has to go back to his world in Ohio and he's filling up his truck. He's filling up his terrible truck with gasoline and he's looking at the gas station. He's looking at the world. There's no dialogue in that scene whatsoever. No words are spoken. You're just on Dan. And you can see that this guy is having a hard time with his world. He's all of a sudden experienced transformation, but he's back in reality. And we're all back in reality. Like we're going to listen to this podcast. We're going to go back and, you know, do whatever it is we do that consumes. And Maybe and, you're driving your car right now on yeah, gasoline. <laughs> sure. Or maybe you're using public transportation. And that's great. It's certainly a lesser footprint. But that public transportation also uses energy and electricity, fossil fuels, natural gas, solar, wind, nuclear. in this system. Right. So, so the bigger question doesn't become just how do I personally lessen my footprint, but how do I begin to engage in radical acts of rethinking? How do we radically rethink this thing called society? I believe it is possible, and I believe it is inevitable. But the speed at which we engage with that will be directly proportional to how many species are there when we're through the transition. It's going to be directly proportional to what kind of world we have. And the sooner we engage in this kind of radical rethinking, the better our interaction with the natural world is going to be as a result. I think it's happening, and it will happen either way. Um, the fact that we're even having this conversation is an example of that it's happening. But can we speed it up a little bit? <laughs> Hopefully so. Hopefully folks will go see on Satan again. Get it on Apple, get it on iTunes, get it on Amazon, go to the theater. Or uh, get, your get, school, get it in you your can get school. It for free. Yeah. So uh, you can go to onsacredgroundmovie.com website and there's a sign up form. If you're an educational institution, you can get the film for free to show and share. We have an educational version of the movie uh, just for schools. It's, it's, um, it's wonderful. So that's, a, that's an opportunity as well. But yeah, if you like this conversation, watch the movie and uh, we look forward to, we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Is there follow-up also the – a lot of times there's a get-together with people in your community uh, and what have you guys done to follow-up or what, what do you suggest to follow-up or will it become clear from the movie or go to the webpage? There is a webpage that has uh, Get Involved, a whole list of action ways you can support actual organizations on the ground at Standing Rock and in other indigenous, indigenous communities. Um, so that's a great resource. Um, but also one of the things that we have been asking from our indigenous friends is like, how can we help? And they say, you know, get curious about your local indigenous community and see where you can make a difference there. And that is something that we've been heat that advice we have also been heeding. And yeah, it's, it can be uncomfortable, but it's important. It's part of us restoring our integrity, you know, as individuals, but also as a nation. Um, you know, I think regardless of what your political view is, this is a nation that has a constitution and that constitution says that the treaties shall be upheld. And these treaties say that this land belongs to indigenous people. So there's an out of integrity there. That's at the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a stain on us all until we really start to look at how we can get involved and take an active role in yeah. healing it. Yeah. There are just put up there are 574 registered 
quote-unquote Indian tribes in the United States, 574 registered tribes. Most people probably would have thought maybe there's two or three. So chances are uh, you live close to one uh, of those tribes. You live one close to one of those groups of people. And it's been amazing to us to meet all of these wonderful people from these diverse backgrounds. and I mean, even in our own community, we, we've learned so much. And it has set us on a new course just yeah. from our inter- personal interactions. Yeah. And as Rebecca said, this is uncomfortable. It's, you know, these conversations can be messy. They can be challenging. They can, they can certainly push buttons and trigger people because these cultures, we're living two separate in two separate worlds currently. And when you merge those worlds, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a first shock. But it, the beauty that's available and the brotherhood and sisterhood and and access to things that we don't necessarily know about as European descendants, mm-hmm. uh, it's vast. It's vast. One of the things that amazes me, and I haven't interacted that much, but of the remaining indigenous peoples in the world, hanging on by thread. After the invasions, the enslavement, the murders, the rapes, they they still want to help us stop that. I mean, there's lots of messages, but one of them is you don't have to be this way. And it's really a great – giving these things up is not a sacrifice. It looks like it will be. But, you know, when – I mean, not I – mean, many indigenous people – come over and 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 become assimilated but many don't and they look at us and they say we don't want to lose the freedom and equality that we have for stuff and steven pinker can write about how our life spans are getting longer although one of my guests living to 30 being old age was a brief result of our culture historically or uh, anthropologically our ancestors lived to like 70 it, there's a lot of myths that we tell ourselves to say that we're so great. Well, we're all stardust, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wanted to mention, you were saying that it's inevitable. I, I, I believe that things are happening. I'm I'm not so sanguine that it's inevitable that change will happen. And I, I don't like to say that because I think a lot of people think, oh, good, it'll happen. I'll get swept along. I think that there's a good chance that the pollution gets so great that people die in large numbers Larger than I'm well, going to say because I'm not trying to scare people. <laughs> what? That's also inevitable, unfortunately. Well, I think if we work really hard, our backs are to the wall. But I mean, it's already happening at this point. You know, yeah, we're, we're seeing the impact of that. I, I think you know, it is going to happen whether we choose to step up or not. I think is really what. Not to speak for you, yeah, but yeah, it's like exactly it's inevitable in the sense that like. Mother Nature really runs the show here, you know, and for us to think anything otherwise is totally, you know, they're just you're asleep at the wheel, basically. And that's maybe humanity in general right now and thinking, you know, we've been so, you know, um, just convinced that we all have to just fall in line with the world the way that it is. But, you know, sometimes when we reach our breaking point from that, you know, that it's the darkest before the dawn. Right. And so maybe that's where we're at right now. And the, what lies ahead of us is, you know, we're collectively jumping through this ring of fire and hopefully we can reach enough people and make a choice that will benefit seven, seven generations from now. You know, and when we do these things, I'm thinking about not my kids, not even my grandkids. Oh, no, I am thinking about them, but I'm thinking about, you know, it's a, it's a new it's like there's Dan. He's standing at the gas station. Same guy. Same place, same action, but he's seeing the world through a whole new lens. But he's but he's seeing the world through a whole new lens. And, you know, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And so then you and naturally what happens, inevitably what happens is that Dan starts to make different choices. And that's, I think, what we're saying is like, is he going to fix it all? Is he going to save it all? Probably not. Maybe, hopefully, but by expanding our consciousness, we can't. We can't un- unsee it, you know, and I, I think that's where we're at collectively right now. We're at that point, that line of demarcation where we get to choose what comes next. Well, to wrap up, is there 
Is there any last words to say directly to the listeners? And uh, besides, see the movie if it's January 13th or after. Thank you so much for listening to this. Thank you so much for being somebody that's interested in our environment and in your community. And um, yeah, we're, we're excited to hear what you think. Let us know when you watch on Sacred Ground. Thank you, Josh and Rebecca. As I mentioned, I've been seeing your movies for going back a while now, and I can't wait for this one. Thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.